Emerson Fursh remembers his first real adult job. It was at a bank in 1986. A friend worked there and told him he'd fit right in. Uh, well, everybody was young. <laughs> I mean, you had the managers were typically, you know, in their early to mid-30s. Generally a pretty attractive group of people that weren't afraid. I mean, I, you know, I don't mean it to sound, but I mean, that's, you know, just it was just the kind of people you, you wouldn't just spend time at work at. You'd go after, you know, we'd always go out afterwards. It was really like a family. And in that family, Emerson became one of the star kids. Within a few months there, he got promoted to become a seller in the bank's new bond program. What did you have to do for your training program, you know, to, like, did you have training to do program? anything? I don't know. I mean, you said no. you were picked for the program. So did you have to do anything? Honestly, I didn't have a college degree. I didn't know a stock from a bond. We never got securities licenses or anything. I literally self-educated through just ordering information from mutual fund companies. And I started reading the Wall Street Journal. I mean, I had no background in securities whatsoever. Now, perhaps helping people invest their hard-earned money should require somewhat more than being an avid reader of the Wall Street Journal. But despite his lack of experience, Emerson crushed the game and sold a ton of bonds. I was one of the top producers just because I had the system down and I knew how to train the tellers and the, the branch employees on how to to move the product. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we had kind of a whole, it was like a machine. Right. Towards the end of my time as a bond rep, we were selling over $2 million a month, you know, and we were getting paid 20, 24 grand a year. And if we hit our bonus, we'd get like 500 bucks. I mean, the company was netting huge amounts of money. So here's 22, 23-year-old Emerson. No college degree, but he's pulling down decent money, working with a bunch of folks who look like catalog models. And it feels like family. On top of all that, Emerson and his bank crew felt like they were doing something super important. Everybody was really committed to the company and to this greater good, you know, which for the employees, you're just, you're, you're believed like you were doing something that mattered. So. Right. When you say, you know, it was, we're, we're working towards the greater good, like what was the greater good in your mind? What was the thing that you were believing in? You know what it was, Keating? It, it was the people that you worked for. Did you catch the name he dropped in there? Keating, as in his boss, Charles Keating, at Lincoln Savings and Loan. Keating was sort of like a father figure or a mentor of sorts to the folks who worked for him. You know, you felt like this is a guy who's on the straight and narrow, and the things he's doing with this company would, you know, in my mind at the time, naturally align with the rest of his life. In the three years that Emerson worked there, he never got the sense that anything untoward was happening. And he never had a whiff that his boss was anything other than upstanding. But government regulators didn't quite think of it that way. They saw a totally different side of Keating and his bank. We were like, this place is out of control. This will be a disaster. We guarantee it will fail. And it did, spectacularly, like the name of our show. Keating robbed working people of their life savings and cost taxpayers billions of dollars. He was responsible for what at the time was the largest bank fraud ever. And he did it under the watch of some of the most powerful players in American politics. And all this set the stage for a little event you might remember from 2008 called the Global Financial Crisis. I'm Lauren Ober, and from American Public Media and the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota, this is Spectacular Failures, the show where we lend failure a bunch of money and we don't even charge it interest because that's how nice we are.
As a young man, Charles Keating was the type of guy girls who liked boys would want to take home to meet their parents. He was tall and handsome, he was a champion swimmer, and a devout Catholic. Plus, he spent four years in the Navy flying Hellcat planes and then became a lawyer. What's not to love, right? He was very tall, very thin. Tall, lean. Brilliant, charismatic. He had an answer for everything. That uh, presence that you'd expect from a guy running a company. But wait, there's more. Keating was a crusader for the moral heart of America. He railed against pornography. To fight this decay of decency, Keating founded an anti-smut group called Citizens for Decent Literature. It encouraged people to pick up classic books instead of nudie mags like Playboy. But I thought men were only reading that for the articles. In 1965, Keating and the Citizens for Decent Literature produced this little cinematic gem called Perversion for Profit. Hello there. I'm George Putnam. I'd like to begin with a fact, a simple yet shocking fact. It is this. A flood tide of filth is engulfing our country in the form of newsstand obscenity and is threatening to pervert an entire generation of our American children. If only outstanding news reporter George Putnam could see the porn hubs and X-tubes of today, he'd be doing more than clutching his pearls. All have combined to put the vilest obscenity within reach of every man, woman, and child in the country. Anyway, Keating was living in Cincinnati, and when he wasn't fighting the evil that is porn, he was head of a holding company that housed everything from grocery stores and strip malls to banks and insurance companies. Keating was known to be an outrageous boss. He had a pension for smashing windows, furniture, you name it. He offered employees bonuses for losing weight, and his hiring practices were straight-up racist. He would ask applicants over the phone if they were black or Mexican. Not like the best way to run a business, but Keating had bigger issues than his objectionable management practices. In 1976, the Securities and Exchange Commission came calling, investigating whether Keating's company had defrauded investors and filed false financial reports. He settled that without admitting or denying guilt and claimed he did it just to save himself legal costs. That's Kathleen Day. She's a professor at Johns Hopkins and the author of Broken Bargain, Bankers, Bailouts, and the Struggle to Tame Wall Street. He then went out west and bought this SNL and proceeded to do the same kinds of things that had gotten him into trouble with the securities industry before. And that SNL she mentioned? That was Lincoln Savings and Loan Bank, which had branches all over Southern California. It's where our pal Emerson worked. Um, what was Lincoln Savings and Loan Bank? It was a thrift that Charlie Keating had bought with the express purpose of taking advantage of a deregulated environment where he could pay depositors whatever he needed to to get money in the door and he could invest it however he wanted, and he knew no one would be looking over his shoulder. A couple of things we need to bang out here. A thrift, a savings and loan bank, an SNL, they're all the same thing, and we'll use them interchangeably here. So what is an SNL? It's a commercial bank. It has to have a charter from a state or federal government that says we can accept deposits and make loans, but it historically specialized in home loans. So I'm over savings and loan, and I do two things. I accept deposits for which you, the customer, get paid a teeny bit of interest. And I give out home loans that you, the homeowner, pay back with a teeny bit of interest. Easy. Also, I give lollipops to the kids and free pens to the adults. 
So give me your money. To promote home ownership and private property, particularly after the Red Scare of the 20s, the government gave SNLs special privileges. And the bargain was you'd specialize in home lending, and in exchange, we'll give you some tax breaks and we'll let you offer savers a little bit higher rate than what commercial banks are allowed to. Savings and loan banks have been around for a while. If you've seen the quintessential Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, the thrift concept might be familiar to you. In one scene, there's a run on the bank and customers are trying to get their money out. But trusty old George Bailey, famously played by Jimmy Stewart, quells their fears and conveniently explains how a thrift works in the process. Take it away, George Bailey. You're, you're, you're thinking of this place all wrong as if I had the money back in a safe. The, the money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house, that's right next to yours, and in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Maitland's house, and, and a hundred others. Uh, you're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do, foreclose on them? And that's how savings and loan banks worked for a very long time. They were generally pretty stable institutions. They were one-note Johnnies. But then in the 1970s, things started to change for the thrift banks. Day attributes this to two major disruptions. One was the advent of computers, which shrank our country and made it much easier for, say, a lender in California to make loans in New York and keep track of them. And number two? The second thing that happened is spikes in oil prices. The Saudis were yanking the chain in the United States, raised oil prices. And bottom line, you got into this period at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, of extraordinarily high inflation. Okay, so it's a little more complicated than that. And if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of it, Kathleen Day wrote all about it in her most recent book. In a very controversial move, so controversial, like it set the monetary policy world's hair on fire, the Fed chairman jacked up interest rates to try to get inflation under control. But this was bad news for the SNLs. Suddenly, folks who were getting pretty modest returns on their savings and loan accounts started taking their deposits elsewhere to take advantage of the new monster interest rates. The SNL's only other source of money coming in the door was from all those home loans they'd made years before at low fixed interest rates. So basically, all of a sudden, the SNLs had a cash problem in that they weren't bringing in enough of it. And by the late 70s, this made a ton of those gee whiz mom and pop thrifts like the one from It's a Wonderful Life insolvent. The government wasn't that keen on having a bunch of failing federally insured banks on its books. So they took some drastic measures to try and shore up the industry. One of those was deregulation. The feds were like, oh, what's up, thrifts? You need to make more money to survive? Well, we're going to make it super easy for you. Those regulations that say you can only do home loans? Yeah, they're gone. Lucky you. Everyone who was anyone was into this revamped savings and loan situation, including the Gipper himself. Today brings me a very special honor, too. I understand that I'm the first sitting president to ever address the U.S. League of Savings Associations. This is from Ronald Reagan's 1982 address to the organization. They gave him a medal just for being there. Well, that makes me happy because when one thinks of the people who live by the values and traditions that made America great, faith in God, love of family and freedom, service to community and country, the leaders of your industry come immediately to mind. Now, hindsight being 2020, that might not be how Reagan would characterize the SNL industry a few years later. 
But for those deregulated glory years of the 80s, the thrift business represented the hopes of unfettered capitalism. And boy, howdy, did it ever become a bonanza. Thrifts could now get their hands in all kinds of financial transactions, not just home loans. They could issue credit cards and make a variety of consumer loans. They could invest in all kinds of other business, commercial, agriculture, and of particular interest to us in this story, real estate. Oh, and they could make adjustable rate home loans, which, no big deal, set the stage for the 2008 housing collapse. At the same time, they scaled back on enforcement. Basically, they created a much more loosey-goosey environment and took nearly all the cops off the beat. So there was no one around to mind this store. And that meant lots of people wanted in. What, um, do we attribute the popularity, the rise in popularity of the savings and loan banks? Because they were deregulated in an irresponsible way that attracted people who wanted to make a quick buck. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel about it. Well, that's a fact. Yeah. It's, it's a fact. I'm just saying it in the vernacular. <laughs> I'm not using fancy terms. But we what, appreciate that. We but, appreciate no, that. No, so, but that really is what happened. One of those SNL wildcatters was Charles Keating. If New York is the epicenter of commercial banking in the U.S., California was ground zero for the savings and loan industry. For legislators in the Golden State, federal deregulation didn't go nearly far enough. California wanted its federally insured banks to be able to invest 100% of their assets in anything they wanted, which is bananas. But they passed a law to make it so. And this meant that uh, owning a California charter was nirvana from the standpoint of a real estate developer like Charles Keating. That's William K. Black, associate professor of law and economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. But more importantly for our purposes, he's a former federal regulator who worked in thrift regulation for a decade. Charles Keating was a failing real estate developer who had been forced to drop out of one real estate market after another. He saw this opportunity to buy a California savings and loan that had a really good branch network and was, contrary to what he claimed, not failing uh, at all. And so through his new holding company, American Continental Corporation, based in Phoenix, Keating bought Lincoln's Savings and Loan Bank in 1984. In Phoenix, Keating discovered vast tracts of open desert that he figured had big development potential. And develop it, he did. Jay Butler is an emeritus professor of real estate at Arizona State's business school. And he remembers when Keating rolled into town. Well, in the 70s, this development community was still a fairly local community. Uh, local home builders whose family had built homes all over the valley, etc. And, and I guess he sort of viewed it as an outsider because he had money, uh, owned quite a bit of land because of the company he took over, the American uh, Mortgage and Financial thing. And his, just his aggressive style led people to do various things. Like agree to a neighborhood full of Tudor-style houses in the desert, which is what Keating built in one of his master plan developments called Dobson Ranch. Most of his projects had flair, um, uniqueness to them. They were just different. I mean, the Tudor, people liked the Tudor because it was different. I bet a house built to look like it belonged in the English countryside would in fact be unique in the Phoenix Burbs. Keating invested in at least a half a dozen residential development projects in the Valley, 
He also got into the hotel business with a couple of projects, most notably the Phoenician, a 600-room luxury resort in Scottsdale. And this is where Keating got a little Trumpian. The Phoenician's website says, quote, to build his special palace, no expense was spared and no detail was overlooked, end quote. That included ceilings etched in 24-karat gold, a million dollars worth of mother-of-pearl tiles for the Serenity Pool, and 11 custom-made Steinway pianos. And apparently Keating was very particular about the wood. He wanted them all had the same sort of grain lines in them, but... So that when they were together, but and it took him a long time to do that. And he constantly was doing change orders, uh, et cetera, trying to upgrade things, make things look better. You might be wondering how Keating got the money to make these investments. Go ahead, ask me. Okay, I'll tell you. He got it from his bank, like the one that he owned. Remember before when we talked about how all kinds of folks were snatching up SNLs after the industry was deregulated? Well, a lot of those people were using the thrifts like their own personal piggy banks, including folks in organized crime and our pal Charles Keating. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, how Charles Keating looted his own bank using some very sophisticated tax schemes and some extremely amateur forgeries, and how five U.S. senators tried to help him. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine... I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. 
This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Spectacular Failures. I'm Lauren Ober. On any given day in Washington, D.C., dozens of meetings are taking place between federal lawmakers and lobbyists, citizens, and various government functionaries. Those meetings rarely happen without the presence of the lawmakers' staff. But on the night of April 9th, 1987, that's exactly what happened. That evening, four Democratic senators, Dennis DeConcini, Don Regal, Alan Cranston, and John Glenn, and one Republican senator, the maverick himself, John McCain, met with federal banking regulators. The senators had a request for the regulators, layoff of Charles Keating. This whole event, says Bill Black, one of the regulators at the meeting, was highly unusual. The most honest bank in the world can't get five senators to go to bat for them when there's been a real regulatory mistake. This is the most fraudulent bank in the world, and it's able to get more political juice than anybody. To be crystal clear, Black is talking about Keating's Lincoln Savings and Loan Bank, which he had been investigating. If you remember from the first part of the story, Keating was investing in a ton of real estate deals with his company, American Continental Corporation. And in order to put money into those deals, American Continental needed a steady stream of cash. And that money came in the form of two main schemes, both pretty shady. The first was a tax scam. Keating's SNL had been passing tens of millions of dollars up to its parent company to cover federal taxes. Except the company didn't need money for taxes. So that cash amounted to an interest-free loan to American Continental with grandma and grandpa's federally insured deposits. The other crooked income stream was more egregious. Remember our pal Emerson First from the top of the show? He was the bond seller who didn't quite know a stock from a bond when he was starting off. Keating was using Emerson and the other sales reps to sell high-yield bonds, also known as junk bonds. Our focus every day was to convert money, whether it was money coming from the outside or anytime somebody came into the bank to, you know, bonds were the priority. Except these bonds weren't federally insured. They were bonds for American Continental, the bank's parent company. And it wasn't totally clear to folks when they walked into a Lincoln branch and bought these bonds that they didn't have the same backing as a regular deposit. And that was kind of by design. When Emerson first got his job selling bonds, it was American Continental who employed him, not the bank. But his desk was inside the bank. I had a desk right by the front door. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, they were, you know, and I mean, I look at this stuff now and you, and you can see how people could have gotten confused. Um, but yeah, my in the three offices I worked in, I was always positioned in a prominent place within the bank. And I, you know, the logo, the desk nameplate, everything looked exactly like anybody that was with Lincoln. Right. So there wasn't any real way, you know, from a perception standpoint to distinguish me from anybody else in the bank. Erica Bachman was one of Emerson Fursch's customers. She bought three bonds from a Lincoln branch totaling $78,000. She later testified in court about her purchase. From court documents, she recalled telling him, you know, Mr. Fursch, you better be sure that this money is safe because this is all I have. This is for my daughter's college education. Fursch told her not to worry about it. The money was safe, end quote. Erica didn't want to be interviewed for the story because she said she was embarrassed by the whole situation. 
She told me she should have known better, which I disagree with. The whole thing was basically set up so she wouldn't know. Emerson says he was really good about telling customers that the bonds weren't insured. But in his mind, the bonds were still as good as gold. Erica and the other customers' money would be safe unless American Continental collapsed. Emerson says he and his coworkers truly believed that Lincoln and American Continental were super successful companies run by a trustworthy family man. So why worry? Plus, Emerson says once people saw the rates, they kind of tuned out any other details. I'd be explaining to people the risks. I can literally see myself sitting down with this one couple as if it was yesterday. Uh-huh. And I'm explaining to them, you know, what these are, what the risks are. And all they're doing is their fingers going down this card and they're, and they're talking to each other, basically ignoring me. Look, honey, if we put this much in, this is how much we're going to get per month. Right. But a lot of times I don't think people were even paying attention because they just got, you know, enamored with these double-digit interest rates, which even then were pretty substantial compared to, you know, what you could get in the bank. Now, a bond is nothing but a big loan to the issuer of the bond. And in this case, that loan went right into the coffers of American Continental. And they were using that money to make big investments in things like malls and housing developments and even a Las Vegas casino. Mixed in with all that junk bond money, there's the deposit money the government was on the hook for. And in California, savings and loan banks could invest an unlimited amount of their little bundle of assets in whatever they wanted. And Keating wanted real estate. But the feds got spooked by this whole arrangement. They were like, why should we have to foot the bill for your risky gambles, SNLs? The regulators were saying, look, a bank should not be a direct owner in uh, in all these commercial properties. That makes them a developer, not a bank, okay? You want a, a degree of separation. They should be lending money to developers and be one of the developer's creditors, not the whole shebang. So the feds came out with rules that said only a small percentage of an SNL's assets could be involved in these, quote, direct investment situations. But naturally, Keating wasn't so into regulators telling him what he could and couldn't do with his business. The whole reason he bought Lincoln was so he could invest in real estate to his heart's content. So he called in the big guns. In 1985, Alan Greenspan, an economist who went on to serve as the chair of the Federal Reserve, wrote a note to federal regulators on Keating's behalf. It read that Keating had a, quote, record of outstanding success in making sound and profitable direct investments, end quote. But the regulators were like, uh, thanks but no thanks, Alan Greenspan. We're good keeping the rule the way it is. So Keating decided to call up some old friends. Those senators I mentioned before, those guys became the notorious Keating Five. He was going to these politicians and having them call the regulator to say, stop, this guy's a good guy. During that little Keating Five confab, senators asked the regulators to take it easy on Keating and maybe try to work with Lincoln on some compromise on the direct investment rule. Bill Black and his fellow regulators were aghast. They figured there was no way the five senators had any clue what they had signed up for. So the regulators laid out just a few of Keating's indiscretions, including making unsecured loans. So we uh, went through a number of the violations, uh, the huge violations, and the reaction of the five senators was, so? (laughs) No, we just told you, 52 loans all over a million dollars. They don't even do a credit check. You can't get a loan for 8,000 bucks without doing a credit check. This place is out of control. This will be a disaster. We guarantee it will fail. I'd say that's a pretty solid warning. 
And so we had to say, and, and we didn't want to because we knew it was going to get back to Keating, uh, look, we're going to make a criminal referral on this place. You are going to bat for a criminal enterprise. Now, why would these powerful and respected senators stick their necks out for a guy like Charles Keating? Tell us, Bill Black. Money. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Of course. Yeah. I I mean, uh, Keating was a a major political contributor to uh, all of these folks, and he would get enormous politicians' political support for what he was doing by just throwing what for politicians are huge amounts of money, but for a corporation is chump change. Quid pro quo is like Keating's best friend. A little I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of deal. Sure, this type of arrangement is pervasive in Washington. But generally, those expecting the quid have a little more PR savvy. Keating figured his political contributions would make it smooth sailing for his bamboozling. He even said so to the press on camera. One question among the many raised in recent weeks had to do with whether my financial support in any way influenced several political figures who took up my cause. I want to say in the most forceful way that I can, I certainly hope so. That's a bold statement, Charlie. Very bold. One of those political figures who was part of the Keating Five was the late John McCain. He received $112,000 in campaign contributions from Keating and nine private trips, including three to the Bahamas for him and his family, where he stayed at Keating's private resort. The cost of those trips was more than $13,000. McCain swore he didn't do anything unethical in meeting with federal regulators. Here he is on AP television answering a reporter's question about whether he'd do it again. Bob, I've said all along, of course, that I have made several mistakes, including the appearance of a meeting with five senators and my failure to reimburse in a timely fashion for some flights. Uh, uh, But given the information that I had at the time uh, and the major economic factor in my state, I'm sure that I would at least meet with regulators, which I did. And as you know, after the meetings were concluded, I had nothing further to do with American Continental linking savings or anyone else. The Keating Five drama was a whole messy thing. McCain could never quite shake the scandal, and it reared its head during his run for president. But here's the thing we can't forget in all of this. Keating straight up bilked people out of their money, particularly widows and other retired folks who put all their life savings into those bonds that were backed by nothing more than the faith and credit of American Continental, which was basically garbage. In April 1989, Keating threw American Continental into bankruptcy just one day before the government seized Lincoln Savings and Loan. And all those investments were lost. Our next witness is uh, Mrs. Ramona. One of Keating's victims was Ramona Miller Jacobs. She testified before Congress in 1989 about her losses. She told lawmakers she invested in bonds at Lincoln so she could make enough money to buy a van to drive her disabled daughter to see the ocean. Because we have lost our money, there will be no van, and we must watch every cent to meet all our monthly responsibilities with the income coming in at this time. The amount of the money we lost to your greed and corruption is small compared to your salaries, but it was our nest egg and all we had. One of the people on the dais that day was Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, then a junior member of California's congressional delegation. And uh, though it may not be much consolation, your, your testimony today as representatives of others who have uh, been built of their savings will hopefully prevent this from ever happening again, this bunko. 
Full disclosure, I just wanted to hear the current Speaker of the House say bunko. Financial crimes are notoriously hard to prosecute, often because it's hard to find an actual victim. When the government backs your deposits, that means that even if you've gotten swindled by a bank, you're getting that money back. What Keating did for us, the only thing he ever did for us, is to create a human face of the victims where people actually lost money directly. And that human face was your grandmother. All told, more than 22,000 Lincoln customers lost more than $250 million on American Continental bonds. At the time, it was the largest bank fraud in American history. And it was Mike Manning's job to try to get all that money back. Lucky for your grandmother. As a young lawyer hired by the federal government, Manning and his team of 30 were tasked with investigating Keating's malfeasance and trying to make bank customers whole. What Manning found in the course of his five-year investigation was a shocking amount of criminal activity. It was difficult because we knew that Keating had engaged in significant fraud, including um, forgeries, backdating documents, creating evidence. Basically, none of his multi-million dollar loans was clean. Apparently, Keating ordered his corporate office staff to create fake loan documentation. They would hold papers with real signatures against a window and then trace over them after the loans had already been approved and processed. Super sophisticated stuff. Nothing was what it appeared to be in the files. Everything had a, a backstory, a, a, a backside deal. Now, we never like to throw too many numbers at people because numbers are hard. But please just listen to how nuts this investigation got. We had to actually rent a building in downtown Phoenix to house these 50 million pages of documents. We had 600 people deposed. Uh, we had 1,550 trial witnesses listed. There were 119 expert witnesses, and we had 300 hearings and conferences. Uh, it, was, it was just a monster, monster collection of cases. Manning says Keating's fraud went so far up the white-collar food chain that almost every major accounting firm and law firm was involved in some way. At the end of the investigation, the government summed up that Keating's fraud left a $2 billion hole in the American economy. Side note, Manning was responsible for cleaning out Keating's desk during the investigation. And what he found inside wasn't quite what you'd expect. Or it was exactly what you would expect, depending on your feelings about Charles Keating. It was full of pornography with Charlie's delighted post-it notes on, on uh, he, he loved pornography. Um, oh, my. Yet he crusaded against it uh, uh, publicly. Right, and, right. And uh, anyone that would look at it would see that he wasn't just researching. He was, he was enjoying the content way too much. At the end of it all, Keating's hypocrisy was finally laid bare. The deeply moralistic father of six was convicted of racketeering, fraud, and conspiracy. Mother Teresa, who counted Keating as a major benefactor, pleaded with the courts to show leniency. They did not. Keating was slapped with two lengthy prison sentences. But he served just four years and change before his convictions were overturned. As his case was coming up for retrial, Keating pleaded guilty to lesser charges and was sentenced to time served. Despite that guilty plea, Mike Manning says he never knew Keating to be at all contrite. I know from interviewing people that were in prison with him and people who were friends with him throughout and family members 
that he never had a moment of contrition, never a moment where he didn't think that this was all the product of a gay cabal from San Francisco uh, that were out to get him because of his position on pornography and other sort of spiritual and religious beliefs that he that he touted. Man, those gay cabals are something else. Really, you got to watch out for them. I'm telling you. It might seem like the Lincoln Savings and Loan debacle is in the rear view. The bank collapsed and its parent company fell apart. The government intervened and many of the bank's customers were able to recover at least some of what was lost thanks to Mike Manning and his team. After his stint in prison, Keating didn't make much of a peep. He died in 2014, the shame of his misdeeds largely behind him. So who cares? Remember, this is the same techniques used in the Enron-era frauds and exactly the same fraud schemes used in the great financial crisis. The savings and loan debacle was the testbed for both of these subsequent crises. The savings and loan crisis was bigger than Lincoln and Charles Keating. There were tons of Keating-type characters all over the country, and all told, they cost taxpayers more than $100 billion. And the whole fiasco served as a warm-up routine for the 2008 global financial crisis. They are entirely linked. Mm -hmm. All the legwork was laid down for mortgage-backed securities Mm -hmm. during the thrift crisis in an effort to help SNLs dig out of their insolvency. It's all there. So, yeah, that's why we care. But there are differences. During the SNL disaster, the feds made 30,000 criminal referrals. After the 2008 financial meltdown, they didn't even make a dozen. When the dust settled from the 2008 collapse, trillions of dollars had poof, disappeared from the American economy. Eight million people lost their jobs. Nearly 10 million lost their homes. And in the U.S., exactly one Wall Street banker went to prison for it. Now, what's that old adage? Something about those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it? Yeah, it's true. Spectacular Failures is a production of American Public Media and the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. It's hosted and produced by me, amazing screw-up Lauren Ober. Marvelous Feet Whitney Jones is the show's producer. Our editor is Scrooge McPhillis Fletcher. Our theme music is by the delightful David Schulman. Other original music comes from the Jeremys, Jeremy Castillo and Jeremy Ray. Lauren D. is the interim director of podcasts at APM. Our other stellar APM buds include Alyssa Dudley, Tracy Mumford, and Christina Lopez. Big love to the Marketplace DC Bureau, especially Betsy Streisand. Shout out to Michael Binstein and Charles Bowden, authors of Trust Me, Charles Keating and the Missing Billions, which follows Mike Manning's pursuit of Keating and Keating's occasional pursuit of him. I was kneeling after communion, and he was in line going up to communion, and I I felt this dark uh, presence. I looked up, and Charlie was had gotten out of line and was standing there over me, uh, staring at me. And he said, uh, he said, that communion will do your soul no good. This week on BizWiz, how to navigate some tricky ethical territory. And I think we could all use a little help with that. Professor Alfred Marcus teaches business ethics at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. And we asked him what to do if you suspect your company is engaged in some shady business practices. If you want to successfully report a problem in your company, you need the facts. You have to have a persuasive argument and you need allies. You cannot do it alone. 
You have to get other people on your side. It becomes a matter of corporate politics. And that means you have to have influential people on your side. Hey, friends, Lauren here. Did you know that Spectacular Failures has a newsletter? Get out. No, we do. Each week, we'll send out behind-the-scenes extras from episodes, weekly team recommendations for things we love, a sneak preview of upcoming episodes, and other fun stuff. You can sign up now at spectacularfailures.org newsletter.